Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 19. Today, we're joined by Jim Shockey, one of the most legendary figures in the world of hunting. The topic of our conversation, hunting northern whitetails. This is an awesome conversation, so get pumped. Get set, and let's go. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. With me this afternoon is my co-host, Dan Johnson, and joining us is our very special guest today, Jim Shockey. Welcome to the show, Jim. Ah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're thrilled to have you joining us, and I know you've got a lot going on this time of year, so so it means a lot. And how are you that, this afternoon? Uh, you know, I'm I'm actually good because uh, I'm at home. Any any time I'm at home, I'm I'm a pretty happy camper. Kind of the opposite of everybody else on the planet that likes to go camping. And I'm I'm pretty happy to be at home for a few days a year. That is nice. I, I imagine that you are gone a ton, so I can see why that would be that would be really nice. Now. You know, for most of our listeners, Jim, I'm sure you don't need an introduction. You're one of the most renowned big game outfitters in the world, and your television shows have been some of the most highly acclaimed um, in outdoor television history, really. Um, but with that said, we always like to learn a little bit something new about every one of our guests. So I was hoping, if if you don't mind, if you could share just a little bit about you know maybe how you got started in the industry in outfitting, and maybe how you got to this point that you're at now today. Sure. Yeah. I um, I can tell you exactly what it was. Uh, Louise and I were just married in 1984 uh, in November, and so 1985, sort of, you know, by June, um, she was actually, we had our, our first son, Brandon, on the way, so so she was, not, she has morning sick, and I had a lot of time on my hands, and I thought, if I have all this time, this would, this would be when I should try writing. I mean, I, I love, I grew up reading Jack O'Connor and Outdoor Life and Peterson's Hunting Magazines, and and I uh, thought I'd, I'd try my hand at, at writing since really there wasn't much else going on around our house at that point. So so I uh, wrote my first article back then, and that, that's really how I started into the hunting industry. So that, that would be uh, 30 years ago now. Wow. And since then, you know, from the from the writing side of things, you know, how did you take that next step into into outfitting and then eventually TV? Was that by chance, or did you plan that? How did that happen? That was kind of both. Uh, the The writing it was going quite well. Um, we, uh, you know, I was mostly writing up in Canada at that time. But then Tony Knight uh, with um, Knight Muzzleloading, he saw my writing and saw that I was I was uh, using a muzzleloader quite a bit. And so he contacted me and invited me down to a couple of industry hunts where he met like really fancy guys, uh, famous to me, you know, like Judd Cooney and, and uh, uh, Jim Zumbo. Uh, at that point, it was Bill Jordan was around there, Larry Weiss, and they were all in that one hunt. So I, wow. that, that started me into the American side of things. Uh, you know, like I say, Tony introduced me to everybody, and I got to start writing for the American magazines. At that point, I knew I was going to make a living in the in the hunting industry. I just didn't know 
what that might be. I mean, I still have my antique businesses going at that time, buying and selling antique furniture, refinishing it. Um, so I, I just didn't know if I'd be selling outdoor T-shirts or if I'd be outfitting. When I, when I finally crunched a few numbers, I realized it wasn't a bunch of money in T-shirts for me, but in outfitting, <laughs> I, I, I could make a living. So I so that, that I bought my first outfitting territory. I remember my wife and I had a long conversation with her. This was 90... 92 at that time, 1992, and we uh, we mortgaged our house through the hill, bought every penny I could, and and bought my first outfitting territory in Vancouver Island because I was because I was already uh, in the writing world. The manufacturers pretty much knew who I was, and anyone with a television show knew who I was. So, you know, I remember Mark LaBarbera from North American Hunter magazine and and their television show by the same name contacted me and asked if I would, you know, take them out on a hunt and they were going to film it for ESPN. And that was my first, my filming debut. So that, that was the luck part of it. Um, after that, once that show aired, a lot of the other television people at that time, which there weren't a lot of, and it was a pretty small world, you know, they, they, most of them contacted me over time and would I guide them and take them on a hunt in my territory and, and because I was in front of the camera so much, it just it was sort of became second nature. I actually worked with uh, Bill Jordan and David Blanton and the guys at Real Show Doors for five years on TNN, and then uh, started my own show in '93. Was the first year it aired. No, t- sorry, 2003. I'm ten years old. So, so it was it was kind of a little bit of luck, right place, right time, with the right product, and uh, and uh, a lot of really good teachers. Uh, mentoring me as I, I came up through the ranks that's awesome yeah it seems like in so many cases it's um you know we're we're, we're blessed with good people to help us and many of these different opportunities end up coming up come because of that so that's pretty neat to hear um, now speaking of your of your television shows before we start diving into whitetails which is what i really wanted to focus on today i do know that you've got a new project that you just started this summer and that is your new show uncharted so that said, you know, could you fill us in a little bit about, you know, what Uncharted is all about and, and why this project is something that you're so excited about? Sure, yeah. It, it, it's actually a co-production between ourselves and the Outdoor Channel. And it's uh, it's one of, if not the first, uh, one-hour outdoor uh, program, um, airing, I think, five times a week. So, it, you know, the Outdoor Channel's invested a, a lot of time and effort, you know, and dollars into this project. So the... the from the production side, the production values are higher than we've ever attained with any of our previous shows. And with an hour long, we get to now tell the story. A lot of the um, a lot of the storyline we had to leave on the edit room floor in exchange for almost a montage music video type feel to the TV shows. Half an hour when you take out all the commercials and take out the intro and take out you know the, the um, you know thanks at the end and and credits and whatnot, you, you end up with about 17 minutes. And that, that's not a lot to, to tell a story. So now with an hour, we can actually tell a story a lot better on the characterization. We can spend more time on that. Uh, you know, we, we can talk a little bit more about what hunting means. Now, now it's not as fast-paced as what some of the guys will be used to, but now you get to sit there for an hour and enjoy this, this program. And it, we're all over the world, uh, into the uncharted regions of the world, which, which for us, you know, is, is, can be pretty uncharted. I mean, we're in Papua New Guinea, I think that already aired, and we're off the west coast of British Columbia, 
on some unknown salmon streams. And Kyrgyzstan, I believe, is airing right now. Uh, then we'll be off in Pakistan and up to the Arctic with the Inuit. And we've already filmed in Paraguay. I think I mentioned that uh, just when you and I were talking before the program. Um, and uh, I'm off to uh, Russia right now uh, in the Caucasus Mountains for you know the next bit of filming. And we've got scheduled in places like Morocco and, and Liberia, which right now with the Ebola uh, outbreak, is, it may have to be revisited, but uh, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, you know, for us, Uncharted is pretty wild places, and, and we're, you know, but that's, that's, you know, that's on the surface, that's the locations. The actual Uncharted is, is more about expanding your own, or pushing back your own envelope, you know, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you're a hunter, to, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, going out in the dark in the back 40 for somebody, that's uncharted territory for them. And, and that's more what the show is about. It's hopefully inspirational to all outdoors people. Uh, I love that kind of philosophical angle on the, the more mental or, or spiritual side of what uncharted means when it comes to hunting. I think, you know, Dan and I talk about this a lot, that there's a lot more to it than just a place or a kill. Uh, there's, there's a whole lot of memories and experiences and, and learning lessons that, that all kind of factor into it. So that's awesome. From everything I've seen, uncharted looks incredible. And from everyone I've talked to, there's been just rave reviews. So I'm excited to see what the rest of the season has to offer too. But yeah, we're, we're hopefully hopefully it's gonna it's gonna resonate with all the viewers. I mean, um, that that'll be the most important. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I have high hopes. I, I truly believe, like you're saying, that that all hunters know that it's not just about a kill. Uh, you know, it's not just about the size of the animal. There's so much more to hunting. You know, family, humor, adventure, culture. These are that that's the most important parts of hunting. The actual animal is is the nice bonus, and that's what makes it hunting. But, but it's absolutely spiritual. The outdoors is our cathedral. Yep, I couldn't I couldn't say it any better myself. Now, with that that all said, though, I guess kind of taking a, a slight right turn, I did want to make sure while we have you to to kind of pick your brain a little bit about what we really focus here on Wired to Hunt about, and that's whitetails. Mm-hmm. And I know you sure. run a major whitetail outing outfitting business in Saskatchewan, and you know, I've seen you do a lot of hunting for whitetails across you know the northern part of the United States or North America and Canada. Um, so with that in mind, my thought today was that we could chat with you a little bit about specifically hunting big northern whitetails. Uh, that sounds seems like something that, that you kind of specialize in. So to kick things off, Jim, for those of us down here in the Midwest or in the southern U.S. that might not know, you know, is there really a difference between our deer down here in the south and the deer up north in Canada? And if so, how? Oh, no question. I mean, morphologically, the, you get a big Saskatchewan whitetail buck, a big bush buck. Uh, they'll weigh 300 pounds, and, and we've actually weighed them upwards of 350. Wow. Um, and and the, the mass on those deer is all in the front end. They literally look like a bull coming through the forest. They're just so built up on the front end. And, and you, you don't see that in any of the southern deer. The, the southern deer you know, with all due respect, are really pretty. I mean, they're, they're gorgeous. They have, you know, beautiful, you know, racks and long tines. They're, they're really pretty. Our, our bucks up in the north are actually kind of ugly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Again, with all due respect to, to any to any whitetail bucks that are listening to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the the, uh, the other thing is, is the antlers up 
north. Like I, I'm, I'm sitting in my office right now looking at probably 20 mounts and European mounts uh, of my biggest bucks I've ever taken, and they're, you know, they're all pretty nasty-looking bucks. I mean, to try and find a, a really typical, uh, you know, nice, clean 5x5 five five is not that easy. Um, you know, like I, I've taken many in the... 180s. My highest is in the 190s, and and many more in the 170s. And only one of those has ever netted Boone and Crockett in 170. And it's, it's really the only clean, perfect five by five I've ever taken. Uh, you, you, it's just not not that common. So we, are, you know, again, morphologically, bodies bigger, uh, antler wise, they're heavier. They're, they they doesn't show up in the score. Because mass doesn't amount for much on the you know Boone and Crockett or SCI scoring, mm-hmm. you know mass is, is the least important. So you know our our bucks grow the antler mass, but but that doesn't count for much. So they look great if you like big gnarly looking nasty racks. Um, so I'd say those are the two biggest differences: just the way the racks look and the body size of our deer in the north. Yeah, yeah. I, I, from you know what I've seen on videos and, and photographs and stuff, that seems to kind of sync up with with a, with what I've seen. Now, another thing I'm I'm curious about. My wife always likes to give me a hard time about the fact that when I go up into northern Michigan and I kill a deer up there, she claims they they taste and they smell bad compared to the deer that I killed down in southern Michigan or a different part of the country that's you know feeding on corn and beans and whatnot. How do the bucks up in Canada taste? Uh, they, they taste great. I mean, I, I would, I would defy anybody to uh, show me a, a steak served in the fanciest restaurant in New York City that's any better than a than a good venison steak from a northern buck. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, deer to me, deer are deer. They they taste pretty good no matter where they're from. And these obviously are not corn fed for the most part uh, up in northern Saskatchewan. But so maybe you might want to revisit your, your wife. The message she's trying to give you. Maybe you're you're traveling too far away from home. You're gone too long to hunt a forest. She wants you to hunt closer to home. Who knows? But uh, but uh, no. The, the meat on the on the. Uh, you know, I'm speaking for Saskatchewan. I've hunted Alberta extensively and British Columbia as well. Personally, never hunted in Manitoba. But uh, uh, sorry about that. But there's uh, someone trying to reach me in my office right now. Um, so, um, you know, no, the deer are great. They, they taste great. They're excellent. There's not a, uh, uh, I, I, like I say, defy anybody to find a better tasting steak, uh, no matter what the meat in the fanciest restaurant in the world. Nice. Well, I'm going to have to chat with my wife about this and see if she's playing mind games with me. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> she may well be. Yeah, yeah I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Now, how about how these deer behave? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk down here about, you know, certain bucks, maybe a buck in Iowa where there's less hunting pressure might act and behave differently than a buck in New York State where there's tons of hunting pressure. How do you feel those northern whitetails behave compared to maybe the average deer that most guys are hunting? I don't think there's any question that the deer in the north, uh, you know, northwest of Canada, have very, very little hunting pressure compared to other parts of uh, North America. So, so they don't like. We don't use tree stands. I mean, I've probably killed one buck in a tree stand in my life up in Canada, uh, one that I can remember. Maybe two. I think I, I think I stayed in a windmill one time. Um, so, so you know, we don't we don't have to go up in trees. Our bucks don't. 
you know, I've seen those ones down south. I've hunted down in, it was in Kentucky. Um, you know, they were walking in looking up. I mean, I've never seen that in Saskatchewan deer. They, you know, the deer down there just are, are so much more switched on. Our, our deer, a lot of our deer have never seen a human being before. Um, you know, they'll walk right in. They, they move around diurnally. You know, they're not, they're not nocturnal. Uh, they can get nocturnal more certainly, um, you know, again, dependent on the weather. If it's hot weather, they'll, they'll move around at night when it's cooler. But it's not because of hunting pressure for the most part. Um, so, so I would say on a scale of one to 10, where, you know, those Southern bucks are, are pushed and hunted hard, you know, they're a nine and a 10 out of 10. Ours are more like a, a two to a four out of 10. Uh, you know, know that there is certain deer, if you're looking for one particular buck, they're, they're still not easy to get. Um, you know, you've got to be right place, right time. And if you hooked up with a doe, you're not going to see him during the day for X amount of days. And, you know, they, you know, say travel through your area, picks up a doe in another part where you're not hunting, you know, you might not see him for another few days. So they're not easy to get, but they're certainly not sophisticated, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, that's my opinion. I'm sure that, you know, some of my, my peers up here in Canada would be, you know, calling in right now with, with uh, nasty comments. But, uh, you know, they're, 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 you know, in my experience, they're definitely not as switched on as the southern deer. They're easier to hunt. Interesting. What do you uh, what do you think about all this, Dan? Coming from an Iowa perspective, um, what kind of questions do you have about about this for Jim? Well, I just wish that uh, the deer that I hunted uh, had never seen a human before. Unfortunately, that's not <laughs> the case. But um, as far as uh, you know, I'd like to go ask you kind of a broader question. You've you've hunted several different species of animals in several, several dish, uh, you know, different locations throughout the entire world. My question to you is, is there uh, a similarity or a tactic or strategy that you could like relate to whitetail hunting that all these animals have? You know, that, that's a funny, it's, it's kind of a good question. And by, by the way, those, I, I've taken, I think I've taken several other species around the world. I think it's been about 300 and, 10 different other species, just for the record. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I've done a little bit of hunting around the world. The, um, you know what's interesting? That, that I will sit for 20 days waiting for a particular white-tailed buck uh, and turn down everything waiting for that buck and be happy if I don't get a buck that season. No, no problem. And I'll sit dawn till dark every day, you know, in the cold Saskatchewan weather and love every second of it. That same tactic will work on any animal in any place around the world, but we never use it because it's just the white-tailed deer. Somehow, you know, they're magical. They're 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 wonderful. They're, they're what we all grew up hunting. It's the number one big game animal on the planet, and and we all of us, uh, I guess, cut our you know cut our big game hunting teeth on on white-tailed deer. Most of us. So they have a, hold a special place in our heart, and we will sit, we will wait, we will hunt them day after day after day, waiting quietly, silently. Internationally, that doesn't happen so much. You, you, you know, I get, I get, it's tough to sit and stand in the Congo waiting for a black-fronted diker for, you know, two days straight. I mean, you go nuts. Well, uh, the 20 days straight on the white tail will be filled every second of the day. And I don't know what that is. It's it's it's. I guess it's just 
the spell that whitetails cast over us as hunters um, compared to anything else on the planet. So, so mostly around the world, it's spot and stock. Um, you know, like red stag over in Asia, you, you know, you might do a little try calling them, but um, you know, it, it's still for, for the most part it's spot and stock, and, and a few instances where you'll you'll still hunt, you know, sneaking through trying to get a shot at them. Um, and even fewer instances where you'll actually sit patiently and wait for an animal day after day after day. Um, and maybe it's a function of, you know, you're, you're not over there for as many days as you are. The season here is, what, three months? Well, most of us are around for three months. We might only get, you know, weekends off, but we, we still can go back and you kind of want it to be over, but you kind of also don't want it to be over. Yeah. Um, but when you're international, you really kind of want to get that animal and, and, uh, you know, because it's not that easy to get back to those places. So it's not like you, 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 you know, fail to get the animal and then come back in in two weeks for another weekend. I mean, you, you, it's a major effort just to get there. So it's a little different focus on, you know, maybe a little higher um, value placed on on getting the animal as opposed to whitetails, where it's just hunting the animal. So yeah, the the, the, the practices would apply internationally, but the most uh, efficacious way of killing whitetail sitting still and waiting, that's not something we use internationally as much as, as one would expect. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. Very interesting. And I'm curious, you know, given what you just said about the kind of unique relationship you have with, with whitetail hunting compared to most everything else you're doing, would you say that whitetail hunting is, is your favorite game to hunt or, or is it something else? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, that's a, that's a question that I've been asked before. And here, here's how I'm going to couch it. My, my favorite big game animal to hunt in the world is moose. It's moose. And, you know, particularly Alaskan Yukon moose up in the Yukon oh, yeah. during the run, you know, the first the start of the run in September. Uh, that's my favorite big game animal to hunt in the world. Now, if you, if you just repose the question and, and ask me, you know, if you could only hunt one big game animal for the rest of your life, what would it be? That's a different different answer for me. It would be white-tailed deer, and and I love hunting moose, and I'll hunt them as long as I can. But but if you took everything away and I could only hunt one animal, it would be white-tailed deer. Um, again, I, I think it's it's a lot of our value system as hunters is is based on on hunting deer. That's what we learned on. That's our skill set. Well, you know, we all cut our teeth on white-tailed deer, and and you know, I've been hunting them since I was 14 years of age. I got my first one. I mean, that's. Oof. Thinking, well, that's 42 years ago. That's a long time ago. <laughs> you know, but you know, I certainly wasn't hunting moose back then. Uh, I think I was 16 before I went on my first hunt, and many years when I didn't hunt moose uh, through my 20s, and and uh, you know, but I always hunted white-tailed deer, and, and I always hoped to be able to hunt white-tailed deer. I mean, my dad, uh, you know, got his last year, last uh, his last deer in 2012. And he was 85 years old, 80, actually 86. Wow. And uh, didn't didn't make it till his 87th birthday. Just missed the season by a year this past year. But I mean, he hunted right until literally the last year of his life. It'd be tough to do that with moose, but you can absolutely do it with whitetail as long as you know you have family members that'll sort of take you out there and help you out a little bit. So yeah, white whitetail deer. That's the one animal that I would I would always want to be able to hunt my entire life. I love it. Yeah, they really do hold a special place in, in so many people's hearts. Um, they just kind of, 
they get in your head and your heart and your gut and you can't get rid of them that's for sure so. no no exactly they're, they're part hunting hunting white tails hunters white tails hunters white tails same difference there's yep. no, no difference absolutely so taking a turn back to back to tactics kind of um I'm curious when it comes to these Canadian whitetails or, or northern whitetails in general, what is your go-to tactic? I know that you're helping with your outfitting business, helping a lot of guys get maybe their first northern whitetail. You know, what is it that you're helping these guys do to make these hunts successful? Well, I mean, the, the, the single biggest factor on on you know that neutralizes the skill set or neutralizes the skill level of every hunter is the fact that we can bait up in, up in Saskatchewan. Can't bait in Alberta, can bait in British Columbia. Um, you know, the, a lot of guys will turn their nose up and say, well, baiting, oof, it's unethical, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we, it's very difficult to grow a food plot up there. Your growing season may be 90 days at the most, and, you, you know, it's, it's just so, it's such remote country. It's not, it's not a practical thing. And up in Canada, too, it's not so much private land up in the north country it's we call it crown land it, it belongs to the government which means you can't just go in there and, and dig up a two acre patch and plant uh, you know some kind of seeds you, you can't do that so so we're you know it's very carefully controlled what you can bait with even like no weed seeds nothing invasive um so it's it, you know I, I you know i don't disagree in certain situations maybe baiting isn't the most ethical if there's other options but up there when you're sitting in a in a forest that's literally you know millions of square miles square with with uh, square miles with with no fences no nothing between you and you know the north pole until you hit the the uh, pre-cambium shield i mean you know and you're not allowed to build food plots what, what options are there well baiting is the one way that you can you can focus the does in an area, and the bucks will come through. Now they're they're not necessarily feeding, but they're they're certainly coming through to check the the does. And it, what it becomes in is is a pure patience game. Um, you know, sitting six days from dawn till dark on a stand when it's you know twenty below zero, it, it takes a lot of desire um, and and a lot of patience, you know, and, and mental mental focus. So they're you know different different skill set. Now. That's how you. That's how you make everybody equal in the playing field. Just whoever's got the most perseverance is going to get the get the biggest deer eventually, and they're going to be on stand when it comes by, barring pure luck. Uh, that all said, it, and I will bait. I mean, I'll put bait out absolutely, um, but I don't do it because it's the best way for me to personally hunt. It's it's the way that we can best get the animals on camera coming through the woods. Um, you know, seeing what they do all day long, and it's beautiful to see. It's like catch and release. It's it's a true catch and release form of hunting. You can bring them in, you can look at them. I'm not going to shoot them, let them walk away. Catch and release, and and you can enjoy the day. You know, as, as a deer doing what they're doing in front of you. The better way to kill a big buck, and this is any big buck, and I, and I truly believe that if I know that a certain set of tracks is made by a big buck and there's fresh snow on the ground. I'll kill a deer. I'll kill it. It's just, I'll track it down and I will kill it. You know, pure and simple, I will get that deer. Uh, it makes for real crappy television footage, nothing to share with anybody because you'll see glimpses, bits and pieces, and, you know, you know, a patch of hair, there's a yeah, boom, and, you, you know, shot goes off, and you're, 
you know, it, it makes for lousy footage, but it's it's a darn good way, an effective way to hunt. The best way, I will kill that deer. At the end of that set of tracks, there's the deer that I'm trying to kill. I'll get him. Um, by the same token, rattling works really well. Steel hunting, a combination of stand hunting, you know, standing meaning literally standing, sitting on a stump somewhere, combined with moving through the forest, carefully still hunting. Uh, that, that family does it in Michigan. Um, oh, what's her name? I think it'll come to me, but uh, uh, the, uh, the Deloitte's, the... the ben- Benoit or... Yeah, that's right, Benoit. Yeah, Benoit, yes. It. Yeah, they, they do it. They still hunt, and they get, you know, the flash shots of the animals. Fantastic way to hunt. Really challenging. Um, and if you combine rattling, still hunting, a little bit of stand hunting, uh, and tracking, I mean, you'll, it's a better way to get a big deer and get an individual big deer, as long as you know that deer made those tracks. So, so yeah, there, there's other ways to do it up there, but the most uh, efficient way, uh, for the average hunter is to come up and, and sit down and stand and just enjoy enjoy the days as the deer come in and, and you know again it's tightly controlled they're only allowed so much bait on the stand and, um, but yeah that, that, that honestly is, is the best way to get the deer up in that big bush country or, or you can sit on a scrape you, if you don't want to use bait that's fine too that's everybody's choice you can sit on a scrape and, and you know a buck will come in eventually and, and that's also a good way to do it you're just not going to enjoy the day as much. There's no does around to watch. No younger bucks. When is the when is the northern rut? Is that uh, early November, late October as well, or is it even earlier than that? No, it's later. It's uh, later. I've I've always felt that the November 21st was the peak of the rut for whitetails, and November 11th is really the serious start of the rut, and the 30th is the end of the rut. Now there is, you know, you can you can rattle them in before the rut for sure in, in late October, early November particularly, and you can you know get them still doing some running activity after after December 30th, depending on the year, depending on the what the moon is doing. But uh, the peak of the rut would be the 21st of November, based on you know my what, four decades of hunting them up in, up in the north. Well, that's interesting. That's really interesting because. The further you get into the uh, to the north south, you get into the northern hemisphere. It seems like the rut gets later and later and later, and then you know you get way south, and it's like in December or January. So that's just almost contradicting science, or some of that that light is part of the breeding cycle. The amount of light there is in a day, and you know one thing. And Jim, correct me. I mean, I guess it's relative to the. You know, maybe our deer just have a, a, a you know a different circadian uh, number in their head. You know, maybe maybe they, when it hits eight and a half hours of daylight, that's when they start to run. I don't know. Huh. Hard to say. Yeah, one thing I think um, I think I've I've heard somewhere, and I think it makes biological sense, is that the farther north you get, those deer are going to be experiencing winters that last later, and so in order for their fawns to survive, they need those fawns being dropped later in the spring um so i think that might have something to do with the fact that you know deer are breeding later in northern canada because you know if if they breed you know late october and they're dropping their fawns when there's two feet of snow still that's not going to be you know a great situation so i think there might be something to do with that Um, but i guess that's just yep yeah no i'm sure that's a reverse behavioral evolution i guess any any deer that 
had their funds earlier in February and March, you know, they died. They they were selected out. So that, yeah, that would that would absolutely make sense. Yeah, yeah. So so something you said a few minutes ago, Jim, really caught my attention. It's something that we haven't really talked much about here on the podcast. So I really like to pick your brain about it, and that is tracking. I know, like you said, there's some people that still, you know, are really big on still hunting and tracking, especially in the northern part of the country. I know in Maine, that's a really big thing, and some of the northeast. But can you give us a, a quick rundown of how you go about tracking and killing a whitetail like that? Because that's something that in the Midwest here, it's not really one of those really popular tactics. But I think a lot of people would be, you know, really interested to hear your take on that. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. The the um I mean, the first key to it is you've got to have enough land that you can do it on without bumping into a border fence that you can't, you know, leave that, that fence or leave that fenced area. Say you have 300 acres. It's a lot better to have two square miles, two sections, you know, that you can, you can hunt in. You need a big enough chunk of forest that you can get yourself into the forest and, and then stop and let, let, you know, sort of get with the flow of the forest, right? If it's too small a, a patch of brush or bush, you're, you, you enter it into it. Everything that was in that bush knows you entered, right? So you need a big enough patch that if animals on the far side of it don't know you're in the bush. And then you sit still and you wait and you, you let... It, it's, all about, um, it's all about moving slowly. One of my mentors uh, that taught me how to hunt whitetails was what they call them jumpers, uh, was Pete Manzik. Uh, Peter's passed away now, but he, he told me, Jimmy, wear every piece of clothing you brought with you. you know, this is every piece of clothing. It's, it's designed for 40 below weather. Plus, when I put layer, even more layers on, I'm, I'm going to be cooking. <laughs> and, and, and he said, that'll make you move slow enough in the bush because if you go any faster, you'll start to sweat. So literally, for me, it, it's, uh, you know, and I tell, oh, get into the bush as quietly, as slowly as I can, say 100 yards into the timber. Then I'll sit still. I'll sit for an hour. Just wait. Just wait. And, and what happens, you, you, you'll start to, the birds will start to come back. The, you know, the squirrels will start to come out. Uh, the nature gets back into its rhythm. It's, it's like, imagine a pool that you throw a rock into it. It has ripples all over it. Eventually, it, it calms off and everything's back to normal again. Yeah. So that's what you have to do first. Then... What I do when I'm really seriously still hunting for a big buck, I'll take one step and I'll raise my binos very slowly and I'll look with my binos in the forest. You, you know, a lot of people don't do that. You have to use your binoculars because it's the only way that our eyes start to be uh, even competitive with the deer's eyes, so or a deer's eyesight. So, so you, I take one step. I look with my scan the entire forest, looking for little notches between the trees. I'll focus my focus ring on the bino back and forth to give me depth of field. Then I'll put the bino, and this is slowly. It's not lift them up quickly looking. No, this is all slowly, slowly. Then I'll take two steps and watching, feeling beneath my feet. I'll use uh, moccasin rubbers, like the rubber moccasins with a, with a um, big wool sock. So I can feel every branch underneath me as a, every twig. I know if I'm going to break something, I step aside. I move it, you know, feel it. Two steps, then I look with my binos again put it down, you know, one step. And now this, you do that, it'll take you hours to go 400 yards through a forest. And remember, the deer are moving too, hopefully. And if not, if they're bedded, you'll be moving in closer to them. If you're going slow enough, you'll, you'll, uh, 
you know, you'll, you'll be able to walk right in on them. My, my goal, if the conditions are right, again, this is the conditions are, are key. And, and as I'll just before I get to my goal, I'll uh, tell you an example. When you're in an aspen forest, say the deer are in aspens or poplars, we call them in the north. Mm-hmm. After the first hard frost, the leaves all turn yellow. Right now, the first wind, the leaves start falling out of the trees, and they're 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 dry, they're crispy, so they're making noise. Right, and they're rolling on, they're blowing across the ground, they're making noise, and all those leaves falling down through the trees on a hard wind day after the first hard frost. I don't care what year it is, you can sneak up on it. I don't care how smart it is. I don't care where it's hiding, you can sneak up on it. And, and my goal has, has always been to sneak up close enough to touch one that's better without it knowing I'm there. I, I've come close enough where I, I almost can reach my arrow out and touch it, Jeez. but I could never reach it with my hand. And, and that's, that's a, you know, there's, therein lies the key to the success of still hunting is conditions. If it's real crunchy conditions where it seems like you're walking on snowflakes, then, then why bother? You're, the deer are going to hear you long before you get close enough. It's, it's not a day to still hunt. But if the snow melts a little bit so it's soft and you can walk quietly, then that's a day to still hunt. You know, the day with the crunchy snow is a day to rattle or stand hunt. So, so it's not about forcing a particular hunting style upon, you know, the, the conditions. It's, it's more adapt to the conditions and use the hunting style that's best suited for that day. So, so anyway, that, there you go. It's, it's a long, slow hunting day. It's, it's, and believe me, you are drained at the end of the day because you haven't gone anywhere, but you've, you've, you've glassed within, you know, like you, every single little tiny opening you can see through it. Like there's little gaps, little shooting lanes that might be hundred yards back in there where you swear you can only see 20, 30 yards and the deer, you'll see them moving in there and, and you can get right among them as they're feeding in the forest, as they're bedded. It's amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And it is by far the best, you know, to me, most gratifying way to hunt. Wow. I know you said it would make awful film, but I sure would love to see, see you on a hunt like that. That sounds pretty fascinating. Heck yeah. yeah. Now, you, you, know what the rating, you know what the ratings would be if you watched me for an hour, <laughs> taking one step every two minutes? And, you know, that, that would be great. Uh, I'll, I'll, pass, I'll, I'll pass that on to the Outdoor Channel and see if they want a show like that. Uh, yeah, they... they uh, <laughs> the, the snooze hour. They might not like that idea too much, huh? <laughs> not now, too much. No, I, I think you need to be a little faster paced these days. Yeah. Now, let's say if you're on a, a hunt like that and you cut a big track, do you, yep. if you find that big track, do you start speeding up to try to catch up to that deer or are you still inching along? You know, what happens when you actually get that sign that, hey, there was a big buck here recently? What, what happens next? Yep. Okay, well, as long as the snow conditions are right, Right? Is there some way that you can tell that track is fresh? If it, the snow's been the same as it has been for weeks, and there's, you know, it's really hard. There's just tracks everywhere. It's hard to tell what's new. Fresh snow or, say, melting snow that you can tell the age of the track is really important. Uh, so once I've determined that the track is a fresh track, then you start looking at the track itself. Is, is it a buck or is it a doe? It's really easy to tell. I mean, A, the, the buck tracks are huge. If it's a really big deer, and like I say, in Saskatchewan, you'll get a you know, 300-pound deer like nothing, a buck. And the does won't be anywhere near that big, 150 pounds, I mean, max. So you're, you know, the doe is not going to be, we're not going to have as big a footprint. So that's the first thing you look at. Then I look at, the, and this is really important, is the, the length of the stride and the breadth of the chest of the deer. 
So the the breadth of the chest, if it's you know um, you know nine inches across, that's big. You know, a doe might have tracks that are four, five, six inches max between them. You know, with uh, across the chest. You know, a big buck. They're massive in the front end, so you can tell right away if that's a buck by the breadth of the track, or the width of it, and not only the size of it, but then also the length of the stride. You got to remember, a big animal that's 300, 350 pounds is going to have a longer stride than a smaller animal. So you you can tell when those, when those deer have a you know 10, 12 feet between your well, you can see all four of their tracks, and you know it's just walking but it's just a stride that's much longer stride, you know it's a big animal. You know, you still don't know what the antlers are, but but at least you know you're on a buck track. And the other thing, too, if it's in the rut, you'll, you'll see, you, you can actually feel that if you let yourself just, just uh, like tune in to what you're looking at, you'll see that buck as he's almost swaggering, like a big buck will come in through the forest. He's, he is the king of the forest, and... and, and they won't even deign to lift their their their, uh, their feet up. They'll, they'll drag their hooves through the snow. They're, you'll see the drag marks, and they're just swaggering. You know, like they're tough boys looking for a fight uh, or looking for love. But they're you know they're definitely uh, you know behaving like like strutting studs basically. So you can see that from the track. It's another way you can tell it's a buck is the drag marks of the the hoofs and the snow. Then you start following that. I would immediately start following. Forget the one, one to you know two steps every five minutes. You, right. You're you get on that track because now you know it's fresh. He's somewhere ahead of you. More than likely he's bedded, right? That's the key. Is more than likely he's bedded because that's the only way you're going to catch up to him. Right. He's going to walk all day and all night. You'll never catch up to him. But they never do that. They always bed for a while. So so you, I would if where I found the track isn't a bedding looking area. If it's kind of wide open forest, or you know, again, it's something you you start to learn once you've tracked so many deer, followed so many deer. This isn't where they bed. They don't bed here. It doesn't feel right. They're 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 going. He's going somewhere else, checking for does. So if he's going somewhere else, I can go somewhere else. I start following fairly quickly, right? But the instant I get a sense that wait a minute, he's starting to wander in his tracks a little bit, right? Again, you just. Imagine you're not What's he doing right now? He's nibbling on food. Okay, if he's nibbling on food, he's not intent on getting anywhere else quickly. Yeah. So that means time to slow down. All right. Now, and then as the as the um, foliage changes, or the um, uh, you know the, the trees, the plants, the the type of trees, the, even the terrain, maybe it's a little, starts to get a little bit hillier. Well, this now you're starting to talk to, about a place, maybe more saplings. This is more like a bedding area, you know, and, and you'll feel it once you've tracked enough deer. You'll know, hey, I'm getting close to a bedding area. He's been wandering tracks a little bit. He's not, a, he's not cruising anymore. The tracks were made this morning. He's bedded right in here somewhere ahead of me. Now you got to get close enough to to kill him, and that's where you stop back or drop back to the, you know, one one step, you know, glass 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 ahead of you, everywhere around you. You know, put them down slowly, move ahead. And uh, glass again. The, the biggest problem will be what happens when you hit brushes too thick that you know it's brushing against you so much and you, you know it's making noise. Uh, you got to be wearing fleeces is the best or wool. Uh, again, if you can wear white in the snow, is perfect. In Saskatchewan, when you're rifle hunting, you have to wear white in rifle season, or orange or red. We'll wear white. 
with a red cap. They they can't see the white against the snow on the trees. You know, it just look like it's it's almost perfect camel. Uh, camel snow camel is even better, but it's not not allowed in rifle season. Huh. So so then you you just move in so closely, so closely, and if you have to, you grunt. Like I'll, I'll make a ghost sound here, and then I'll fall and listen. That, that's just like a pig huh. snort. Uh-huh. I can do that with my mouth. I don't have to have a I don't have to have a, a call of any description. Sorry, Will Primos, um, <laughs> but but you can actually do it with your mouth. You don't have to worry about a reed freezing up in the cold northern air. You can do it with your mouth. And and if you do that, just... You sound like a young buck coming through the forest. And yeah. they, the deer will... They will... They'll listen. Right? You'll get their attention. They're going to hear you moving anyway. And you've got fleeces on, so they, they don't hear that rustling like normal clothes. And then you have a set of antlers in there that you just rake a, a sapling a little bit. Just rake it. You know, Now, you, now you're... You've made the sound of a buck grunting. You've made the sound of a buck raking his antlers. They will accept the sound of something approaching, and they won't leave. They'll stand there. So anyway, these are all my, my top secrets for, uh, for hunting. Uh, I'm hoping that you guys don't have millions of viewers. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of big dead deer this year. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> this so is... anyway, that, that's that's all. You know, you, And if I get a little passionate about it, it's because I love it. It's... it's uh, I love it. I, I mean, I like I say, whitetails are the one animal I'll hunt for the rest of my life, if I can, you know, God willing. Yeah. So, I, so these are all things that I've learned over the years and applied them, and, and they work. This is awesome. No, that was uh, one of the most interesting explanations of a hunting strategy we've heard yet on the podcast over 19 episodes. That uh, that was awesome. I want to go out there and start tracking some whitetails myself. <laughs> Although my uh, the 40 acres. Back on my uh, my back forty here, probably wouldn't be able to track too far. But <laughs> that, that's you know, and, and therein lies the one problem with tracking. You got to be able to go for miles if necessary to uh, stay on their track. If you got forty acres, they they'll stand on the other side of the fence on your neighbor's land and and uh, stick their tongue out at you. So you got, you got to have the space. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I love your I love your passionate descriptions of of what you're doing there and how you're tracking deer. So it makes me think of another question being. You know what is your most memorable whitetail hunt? I would love to hear that story because uh, you are one heck of a storyteller. <laughs> well, that the I appreciate it. I think thanks for the compliment. Uh, you know, I, I'm passionate about it, so it, it, it's pretty easy to tell a story when you're passionate about something. You know, for me, th- there's three hunts come to mind. Uh, um, Bramlin's first buck and Eva's first buck. Um, those your first white-tailed deer. I mean, those both. And, um, and for Evie, it wasn't even her first white-tailed buck. It was more her first. It was her first Saskatchewan white-tailed buck. Because again, I grew up out in Saskatchewan, and and to be there with her when she got her first deer, um, it, was, it was fabulous. I mean, it just it, there's nothing like it. Um, and and anyone that's got children out there that hunted with or looking forward to hunt with will know what I'm talking about. It doesn't get better than that. Um, and yeah. then, uh, you know, my own first white tail when I was 14 years of age. That, that, uh, you know, I mean, I'm looking at the rack right now here in my office. I'm literally looking at the rack. Uh, you know, and I can tell you exactly everything about it. I mean, it, that that's as if it was yesterday. So uh, how how did it happen, that first, that first deer for Jim Shockey? Well, it was... It, my my father and his brothers uh, were all my uncles were they were meat hunters, 
So whitetail deer hunting was about going out and getting meat for the freezer. If you could go out opening morning in whitetail season and, and everybody kills their deer that morning and they're back at work at noon, that, that was the best whitetail season ever. <laughs> I, I wasn't quite, you know, somehow I was, I was born under some different star, I guess. I don't know. But uh, for me, it didn't make sense. I always wanted things to last. But the, uh, my whitetail deer was, was kind of like that. It was opening morning. Uh, I was driving with my dad and two of my uncles uh, uh, in Saskatchewan. And, and they, did, they used to push bush, it's called, which basically drive, deer drives, and, uh, and road hunt, essentially road hunt. I mean, in those days, that's what they did. And, you know, who was I to tell them? I was 14 years of age. Right. I had my... Uh, my 303 British, sporterized 303 British, and uh, I remember we were driving along first light, and out in the field was a buck following about four does. So they slammed on the brakes, and you know, I've, I've, been on, I've been on many hunts with my dad and his brothers, and I knew the routine. You, you bail out and, and you know, crank your shell in or you know, load it up because you're not allowed to have one in the magazine. And then everybody started shooting at the deer. Well, in this case, you know, we all bailed out, and, and I you know, cranked a shell into my gun and, you know, started popping away at these deer while well, I actually took one shot and the deer dropped. And, wow. and I, I mean, it was my first, I didn't know. I mean, I, I didn't know enough about it. I actually turned around and I said to my dad, who, who hit him? I didn't know. And they, when I looked around, my dad and my two uncles didn't have their guns. I was <laughs> the only one holding a gun. So that was my, my first, it wasn't exactly like I would have, um, he wanted it to be, you know, now knowing what I know after 40 more years of hunting them, uh, you know, and how Eva and Brand got their first deer. But, you know, it, you know what? It was it was my first deer, and it's a cherished memory, and it was maybe, again, not the most ethical way to hunt, but uh, but it was my first deer. And uh, I, I did get him, did get him on the run, and, and I was the only one that shot. So, I, And, by the way, my uncles, somehow not one of them, uh, helped me with the uh, gutting of that deer. And it was about twenty below, and I, I had to figure I had to figure it out by myself. Yeah, so so there's there was the uh, the downside to that getting that first deer. Yes, yeah, so you really had to work for that one. What uh, what what was that feeling like when you walked up on your first deer kill ever? Was it shock? Were you just excited or sad? What what were those first moments like? You know, you know what I I can tell you absolutely it was it was exactly the same feeling that i get today you're excited you walk up and just wow like this you just want to get your hands on that animal to to hold it to feel it uh, you know it's yours you now possess it you 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 know and it's i'm sure that's a primal uh something primal that you know when we had food back when we were cavemen that was a joyous feeling that was joy meant we, we were going to survive for another day, another week, another month maybe. You know, our family was going to survive. So yeah. when when it's literally that innate in us, if any hunter will know, you walk up to that animal, it's like it's a overwhelming feeling of, of joy. It's not an adrenaline. It's not a it's, it's joy when you're walking up, when you get your hands on it. And then it turns into a – it turns – for me it was uh, – almost a melancholy and it still is to this day, you know, it's a melancholy. I, I just took the life of this animal and you know, it's one less animal in this world, which I, again, is probably a very natural thing for us to, as, as hunters, yeah. you know, we, we just predated on one of the animals we're trying to predate on. Well, now there's one less it means it's going to be that much harder next time. 
there's less animals to hunt. So there, you know, it's a melancholy and a sadness almost that comes over you, and and a, almost a regret. And, and I, you know, and, and that's the part I don't quite understand. Maybe that's where we're more civilized nowadays. Uh, I don't know because I, I can't talk to my antecedents from a thousand years ago to know what they felt. But but the, you know, it's almost a regret for me that wow, the, the season's over. You know, everything I every all the effort I put in, all the anticipation. You know, the preparation, the practicing, you know, the scouting, whatever I was doing ahead of the season, you know, anticipating the season, it's all over. And the reason I did all that is now over, and and you know, my season's done, and it won't be until next year that I get to do this again. So that, like I say, that may be the civilized part is the regret, um, you know, because our ancestors didn't have to worry about that. You know, they they would, I'm sure, feel a little sadness that this animal's dead, and and then they would just go, okay, what's next? We got a butcher. Let's let's get on with life here. Right. Somebody watch out for the the dire wolves and the cave bears because they're they're coming, <laughs> right? Where where we don't have to worry about that now. We have the luxury in our modern civilization of of uh, of feeling a pang of regret that uh, you know everything we work for is now over. I guess like an Olympic athlete, race is over, won the gold medal. Now what? You know what what's next? It's you know well next Olympus is four years away. So, so you know, for hunting, it's next season. Now, some places, obviously, you know, they get to shoot more than one deer a season. That's not the case in in North and Canada. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting and strange combination of emotions that I think all hunters can relate to. And it's it's also one of those things I think you know it's always interesting to hear another hunter describe how they feel. And I think I can relate relate a lot to what you're saying there, Jim. But it's something that's so hard to describe to someone who's never experienced it. I think in a lot of cases they, they just can't really wrap their heads around that. Um, it's, it's quite an experience. Yeah, it is. And and it's, you know what, it's what makes us human. And And I actually, I feel sorry for everyone that doesn't hunt, that doesn't get to feel that, that deep innate spiritual, uh, uh, what would it be like, like, uh, it's, I know, a friendship like a, or, it's almost like or, a calling. Yeah, it's like a, exactly right. It's like a calling. It's a partaking of something that that people that don't hunt can't ever can't ever experience. And I don't care what they say. You can jump out of all the airplanes you want. You can ski down Mount Everest if that's what you know. You get your tickles from that. You can you know die with with sharks with uh, you know naked. It, it's still <laughs> nothing compares. Nothing compares to the innate, that overwhelming sense of, oh, we need a new word. Think of a new word. Uh, it's not joy. It's not, it's, it's not spirituality, maybe. It's the closest. Connection. The, the connection, yeah. You know, it, it, um, you know, being part of the circle of life. You know, life begets death, begets life. To, to actually be part of it and not just be a voyeur living on, on chickens and cows that are, that are growing however chickens and cows are growing, you know, when you're actually providing for yourself and, and you kill that animal and you're going to eat that animal, you know, and you when you walk up to that animal, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's nothing more pure. There's nothing more pure. And, and, uh, it's not adrenaline. It's, it's like you say, you can't, it's impossible to describe to somebody who doesn't hunt. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, it'd be wonderful if the people that don't hunt would try it, just try it. You know, just see what that feeling is, and, and uh, it, it's hard to deny it because it's it's real, it's pure, it's us, it's innate. 
It's who we are as human beings, and it's when you're truly the most human is when you walk up to that animal. Uh, and, yeah, it's, uh, I wish the rest of the world could hunt, too. I wish there was enough space and enough animals. Unfortunately, we got to be careful what we wish for sometimes. Yeah, very true. Well, I uh, gosh, this is one of my favorite aspects of hunting to talk about. I love talking about this this non-necessarily tactic or killing focus, but just about the everything beneath the surface. It's it's so deep, and many times the people don't actually talk about it. Um, but that said, we are really coming up on on time here. So I know we want to be respectful of your time, Jim. I know you've got a lot going on. Um, so Dan, do you have any final question for Jim before we uh, close things up? Yeah, you know you're ab- you're obviously an advocate for for hunting, and you're very passionate about the outdoors and hunting as well. What would you say is your biggest takeaway from this sport over over all the years you've done it? Uh, you know, I, I think I, I would I would say that it has to be the the family uh, orientation of of hunters. And hunting. I mean, it, it is truly a family-oriented pastime, and I think that sometimes in today's urbanized world, we, you know, as we leave hunting behind, you know, so many people don't hunt that live in the cities. Um, I think we also leave behind some of the family values that uh, that made, you know, Canada and the United States of America the greatest countries in the world. You know, it's family is what what uh what this these nations are built on and and when we forget when we forget hunting we also kind of hand in hand forget forget family and again i'm sure i'll get a bunch of crappy emails from people in the city saying i love my kid yeah you do i'm sure you do you know and and hope they enjoy their week at camp this year you know that's i'm being a little derogatory there i shouldn't be but but it's you know it's not the same you know the, the the uh you know, farming culture, you know, agriculture, you know, when you take away the culture out of, out of our lives, what are you left with? Well, you're, you're left with agra, you know, it's not the same anymore. You know, it's, it, it, it was, uh, so to me, I, I think the biggest takeaway is that hunters tend to be family people. They tend to be salt of the earth. They're exactly who I would want, uh, you know, backing me in any kind of a fight you know it's it's, you you see it you see it you see it in the military you see it uh over and over the the values are there so so hunting is just part of that uh part of the value system i guess that that makes family uh, that uh, what it is you know why it was so important for these countries how they developed and i just would be afraid over time that we the more we urbanize the more we get away from hunting the more we get away from family and the importance of family. Uh, so th- that, that would be my, my takeaway. I'm not, not sure if that's exactly the answer you're looking for, but, uh, but the uh, you know, hunting family and family hunting is, again, same thing. We're tied inextricably, to, inextricably together. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's, it's such a great reminder, too, because you know, as hunters, especially today, there's such a focus in some cases, there's such, such a focus on, you know, killing a, a certain type of animal or a size animal um, or, or just getting that, that kill when 
so many times we start forgetting about those most important things, like you said, family and those experiences. So that's a, the journey, the yeah. journey, man. It's like I, I killed one of my biggest bucks um, a couple of years ago and I, I felt I almost had a feeling that don't get me wrong. I loved the kill, but the journey for me almost shadows the, the, the last 30 seconds of the entire, the entire journey. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's, it's, I mean, think about it. 30 seconds. You, you said it right there. 30 seconds out of how many days did you have? How many weeks? How many months did you prepare for it? You know, the, the actual kill is, is such a tiny little part of it. And, uh, and it's, it's uh, a little bit sad when, when a guy's hunt is ruined because it, the animal scored this instead of that, yeah. you know, two yeah. inches less or two inches more. Who cares? It's not, a, it's not about that. It's, it's about exactly, you said it, it's the journey. It's the adventure. It's, it's the, the getting there, doing it. And, and the animal is, is, you know, what, what the record book says about it or what the tape measure says about it is really, truly irrelevant. It's, it's has nothing to do with the hunt. Nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really hope that, you know, this is a message that, that hits home with people and that, and that people can, can keep in mind this coming hunting season, especially um, because it, it's so easy in today's hunting culture to get obsessed with those ancillary things that in the end really take away from what's what's most important. So. Sure it is. Yeah. And, 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 and don't get me wrong, and, and I think all three of us uh, would, would be uh, remiss if we implied that we wouldn't uh, make an effort to get a bigger buck than what, what we're seeing right in front of us. Yeah. I mean, that's, but that's all part of it. And you set your goals understanding that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the accomplishment is directly proportional to the challenge. So you, you want to get yourself a 200 class white tailed deer and that's important to you, then understand you're going to fail on getting the animal that you want, but don't let that ruin your hunt because you still had the hunt. In fact, you'll be able to hunt longer than almost everybody because you're never going to be tagged up for at least not in this lifetime. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, it's, it, you know, as long as people keep perspective on it, yeah, it's fun, really fun to shoot a big buck. And I love to hunt for a particular buck. For me, that's the challenge nowadays is I want to hunt that buck. And with the trail cameras out there, it, you know, stealth camera we use, you know, I have a pretty good idea what's around. So I can hunt a particular buck to the exclusion of all the others, which, again, you know, that's that's a challenge. But I'm never, ever going to feel that my hunt was, you know, wasn't a great hunt because I... I put those constraints on myself to not shoot something. And I didn't shoot anything because I was looking for a particular deer. And it's the same thing for someone who want, you know, they come up to the North to Canada, you know, they think 160 and 170 whitetails are behind every tree. They're not, you know, 140 is still a good whitetail in Saskatchewan, and Alberta. It, it, it is for an average guy coming for one week. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good deer. And, and if you come in with false expectations and want a certain size deer only, or it's not a great hunt, you'll miss out the beauty of just sitting on the stand watching all the other deer, you know, and, and, and you'll be disappointed when you shoot one that's, you know, 142. Uh, why, why, you know, it was, it's a great deer. You had a great hunt. That's like, uh, like you said, Dan, it's all part of the journey. And that, uh, you know, I, I think that hunters would be better off happier if, if they could keep that in perspective. And, and it's hard because, Look what we show on television, right? We're we're condensing an entire season into half an hour. Well, yeah, you kill a big deer, and you got ten cameras out there with ten different guys. You're, you you give a false impression that there's those big deer behind every tree, and if you don't get that, it's not a successful hunt, and, and it's just not true. I mean, yeah. it's hunting is about family, fun, adventure, humor, and and 
big animals are at most, you know, 20% part of any hunt. And really, the kill, 30 seconds, like you say, it's maybe down to about a 0.0001% of a hunt. So it's, you know, that's not the important part. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah, so true, so true. Well, Jim, this has been an awesome conversation. And, you know, for our listeners, if they want to learn more about what you have going on or catch you on TV, you know, where can they go to get that information? Uh, com, or they can Facebook me is uh, probably the best way. Uh, I've got to get my Facebook numbers up to match Eva's. She's like, done, like twice as many people, <laughs> twice as many fans. What Uh-oh. What is that all about? Somebody, somebody, somebody Facebook me and tell me, how can Eva have like 562,899, but who's counting fans? Oh, jeez. Uh, you know, uh, well, her poor dad is, is uh, like uh, half that. I know. I guess so, you need yeah, to... You need to get a field and stream cover now, Jim. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's that's uh, that sure does wouldn't hurt, would it? Yeah, not at all. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'd be I'd be like the one thousand eight hundred ninety ninth male that's been on the front cover as opposed to the second female. So right. Not quite not quite as significant. Not not but, quite, I uh, guess. <laughs> but yeah, fa- Facebook is probably just as easy as anything, um, and uh, and or our website jimshockey.com. Either way is is. Uh, you can follow along with what we're doing. We're pretty good at keeping posts going on and uh, letting people know where we are, what we're doing. Excellent. I will. I'll make sure to include links to that in our show notes so everyone can can check those out and, and catch the new show Uncharted, which which looks excellent. And you know, Jim, like I said, this has been a pleasure. So thank you so much for the time and for chatting with us today. It's my pleasure, guys. Appreciate it. Time to take my wife out for sushi now. <laughs> Perfect. We'll have a, have a great evening, and thank her for allowing us to borrow you for a little bit here tonight. Uh, she's probably happy with it. I've, I've been home for about four days now, so she's already grown tired of me. So she's, <laughs> she, she, she's happy to borrow me out for a few hours. So. <laughs> good deal. Well, best of luck the rest of the season, Jim, and have a good one. Okay, guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow. How about that? I just thought that this conversation was terrific. Jim's knowledge of this pursuit is incredible, and his passion for the hunt is truly palpable. I love it. And I hope all of you got as much of a kick out of this interview as I did. That said, as always, if you enjoyed the show today, we would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. It takes less than three minutes, and it could help hundreds of new whitetail addicts find this show. And in my opinion, that's a pretty cool thing. So thank you in advance. Speaking of thanks, we'd also like to thank our excellent partners who help make this show possible. Big thanks to Sick of Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Hunt Soft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Also be sure to visit wiredhunt.com slash episode 19 to view the show notes and links from today's episode. That said, thank you again, Wired Hunt Nation, for spending some time with us here today. And until next week... Keep chasing the dream and stay wired to hunt.